0: First of all, an apology. In the previous episode, when discussing the notoriously controversial lyrics to the Classical on Hex Induction Hour, we rounded on Ewan when he asserted that Marquis Smith had dropped the offending lyric when performing it in 2002. Whilst we weren't ready to give Smith a free pass on his choice of words, we were equally unwilling to believe he'd show anything approaching contrition, at least not in public. Well, it turns out Ewan was right. The Classical was briefly reprised in the Fall's early 2000s set, but I can find no record of what he actually sang instead. Get in touch if you know. On this episode, our 16th in total, I'm pleased to say we're rejoined by the same guests as last time in order to explore the latter part of The Fall's 1980s output. Fliss Kitson, the Nightingale's phenomenal drummer, seriously, go and see them live as soon as seeing bands live is a thing again, John Henderson of Tiny Global Productions, and Jonathan Fisher all return to share their love for the late 80s Fall sound. You and I feel very lucky to have been blessed with such exceptional guests. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, I strongly recommend jumping back an episode and listening from the beginning of this particular journey. You can find all our episodes on Beat Rehab at beat.rehab/tempfans and on our new website at tempfans.com. They're also in all the other places people forage for podcasts, including that weird one you use. You can also find out what we're listening to outside the podcast by joining the Temporary Fandom's Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash tempfans. Like us, share us, buy us a coffee, all that bollocks. But I'm pretty sure I know what you're here for. We've got another six full albums to pick over. So let's just get on with it. Get ready, Temp fans, for the Fall Part 2.
1: Hello there, welcome to, back to Temporary Fandoms. This is episode 16, and or part two of The Fall, if you only started joining us for The Fall. Uh, remember, there are loads of other bands we have covered so far, uh, go back for Queens of the Stone Age. Spoon, Can, David Bowie, Yola Tango, The Pogues, ESG, and there's that a is- lot coming, and others. <laughs> and there's a lot coming this, this year. Um, still with us, um, John Henderson. Hey, John. Hi. Phyllis Kitson, hey Fliss. Hello. Jonathan Fisher. Hey John. Hi there. And Nick. Hello. Uh, we're going to keep this brief as obviously um, there's a lot more to talk about. So we're going to get straight onto the introductions. Um, no introductions from John Henderson this time. Um, we've got Nick who is talking about
0: 1983 uh, is perverted by language.
1: Perfect. And Fliss, you're back with The Wonderful and Frightening World of the Four. Excellent. And John Fisher, what are you covering today?
2: I've got the whole second half of the 80s. Wow. From This Nations, I know, This Nations to Curious Orange. And I've managed to sneak in a bit of Seminole Live as well.
1: Um, As a a lovely aside, you know, when you have a, a reference that you don't know where it came from. Um, growing up with a uh, program in the UK in the mid 90s, which was this morning with Richard, not Judy, uh, uh-huh. with Stuart Lee and Richard Herring. Um, now I know what the Curious Orange is because there was a character called uh-huh. I Am Curious Orange, um, mm-hmm. which we hopefully will discover well. and discuss uh, later on in the round table. So without further ado, I'm going to ha- hand you over to one of John Fisher's musical stings and we'll be back in a bit.
0: How are you going to write a full song? writes Steve Hanley in the big midweek. Simple bassline, pounding drums, scratch guitar, blocks of cryptic lyrics. 1983's Perverted by Language has all these things. We still have Craig Scanlon doing his scratchy guitar, Steve Hanley on bass, which may well be simple, but it's also the relentless force that drives the whole album, and still no less than two pounding drummers, Steve's brother Paul and Carl Burns. This is also the first album to feature Brick Smith, Mark's soon to be wife, and may be considered the beginning of what is often referred to as the Bricks era. However, most of it was recorded before she joined. She first turns up on the backing vocals of the album's opening track, the call and response that is, Eat Yourself Fitter. This is the full track that John Peel chose as his Desert Island disc, claiming that he fainted the first time he heard it. I'm not sure it would be my choice, but Peel's alleged giddiness makes for a touching story. Bricks doesn't show up again until the closing track on side one. A wobbly intonation of one more time for the record on Hotel Bloedel is either endearing or excruciating, depending on your sensitivity. I love this first tentative step towards transforming the full sound into something more poppy, a tension that would define their sound for the next decade. The rest of the record is closer to Hex induction hour in sound, although I sometimes feel that the six and a half minutes of Eat Yourself Fitter make it seem harder to digest. In Neighbourhood of Infinity, Smith sings, I used to have this thing about Link Ray. I used to play him every Saturday. And for years, before I discovered who Link Ray actually was, I used to imagine that this was a 1980s arcade game. In fact, I had a very clear image of Marky Smith playing Link Ray on one of those tabletop video games you found in pubs in the early 80s, the glass smeared with lager. If you don't know who Link Ray is, look him up. Soon you'll be playing him every Saturday. God bless Saturday. And while I'm on Neighbourhood of Infinity, Allow me to add that it may be one of the only known instances of the word jackanapes in a pop song. Get in touch if you know otherwise. Garden. More impenetrable yet strangely evocative lyrics, as we see what flows from Marky Smith's slushy pen over a hypnotically skewed riff. If you want to dig deeper, I can strongly recommend the excellent Annotated 4 website. But honestly, I don't know that you'll come out any the wiser. It's all just impressionistic illusions and surreal or sinister gobs of linguistic intrigue. The song plays out to Marky e. Smith repeatedly screaming, a Jew on a motorbike, one of the most quintessentially full moments in their long discography. There's more, so much more, but it's best if you just listen to it, or submerge yourself in its unsettling miasma. Coming up for air into the more mundane world of record labels and the axes Marky e. Smith had to grind, he fell out with rough trade because of his probably correct perception that they were more interested in those other Mancunian upstarts who seemed to have stolen his name. The Smiths. The bloody nerve.
3: The wonderful and frightening world of the Four. I certainly think this is the more accessible album to come from the group by this date, but it's still highly interesting with a lot of layers. Um, It starts off pretty gothic with Lay of the Land, and then that big hefty bass line that everyone's gotta love from Steve Hanley, grabs you by the collar right away. And the first two tracks feel quite propelled, like you get on a Krautrock record, and I think that's why I really got hooked to this album when I first heard it. That can, Jackie Liebsite, drumming, repetitive, love it. Um, and then the pop touches come in right from the second track, two by four, hand claps and jaw vocal by Bricks. Then it goes into this great attitude drone on Copped It" with guest vocal by Gavin Friday from The Virgin Prunes. I'm not actually sure on the story behind that, but it definitely brings back the goth element in again. Then there's elves, and if you're going to steal you're still from the best, don't you? But it's definitely a homage or blatant rip-off of the Stooges' I Wanna Be Your Dog. Um, It's my least favourite track, I'd say. It's just no bollocks to it, and it sounds like it's knocked off quite quickly, a bit undercooked. The lyrics are really good, though, and I love the gang vocals on this track. Um, For some reason, I've got a French pressing of this album, not because I'm a vinyl nerd at all, just... and it's got creep on it next and i know i can see why this was left off the original album to be honest because it doesn't sit on it at all it's definitely going for the chart sound it even sounds like a drum machine i don't know but it's definitely a standalone single and should have been never put on this album i don't think so straight into slanking then And I always think of this song, if you were down a pub and asked someone who had vaguely heard of The Fall to do an impression of Marky Smith, they'd do it in the style of how this song starts. This is him. His vocal style is so unusual and people forget how unique it really is. I feel like this track could have been an inspiration on the mad Chester Happy Mondays guitar sound. Don't quote me on that because I know nothing about that scene, but it Really sounds like that guitar sound, doesn't it? And then it's Bug Day, and this just sits there in a psychedelic kind of way. Really reminds me of Zappa or Future Days by Cannes and that hot feeling you get where it's just like the summer atmosphere in the music. Love it. Stephen's song, I'd say this is my favourite song on this record. I'm not entirely sure why, but I always go back to this song. It's that repetitive horse-riding riff again, I think. And Gavin Friday's back, bringing the gothic vocals in. Can't beat it. And then the album ends with Disney's Dream Debased. And I think this is a lovely song. If you could say any song by The Fall was lovely, I suppose. But it's quite sad knowing the meaning behind it now after reading Brix's book. So maybe we'll discuss that in the podcast a bit more. But... I could, it could have been a big influence on the Pixies, this song, that riffs are quite epic sounding and I love that satanic riff in the middle that never happens again, that you just want to happen again. Yeah, brilliant album. Give it a listen if you never have. I can guarantee you the first three songs, if you play it on good speakers, will have you hooked straight away.
2: This Nation's Saving Grace, 1995 This is the one the album spoke about in hushed tones In hallowed halls up and down the land The greatest Fall album of them all Or is it? For some reason Fall fans cannot always agree On which album to bestow this honour Some say Nations, some say Hex Some say perverted by language Some even say shift work. I've honestly heard that said, I'm not kidding. So huddle around, let's look at the evidence. Is Nations the greatest fall album of them all? 1985 is a bad year for post-punk. It's probably a bad year for everything. How could a band that started in 1976, living through the swings and spit of punk, even consider releasing the, anything like their Greatest Album in 1985. Also, I guess it should be said that Greatest Fall albums are really ripe for reappraisal and knocking off their pedestal. Are they really that good? Really? I guess it's an understatement to acknowledge that The Fall are known for their lineup changes. Been a f- quite a few already in these eight years of existence. There's going to be quite a few more as we go on. Here, though, we managed, at least for a time, to lose the whole backbone of the band, the Hamley Brothers. Paul on drums and Steve on bass. For Paul, this will be a permanent arrangement, but he'd be rather effortlessly replaced by Carl Burns, who had played with the band on and off since the beginning. And as one half of the framed two drummer lineup. While Paul had just about had enough of life in the band, Steve Hanley would attain the least fall like holiday imaginable maternity leave. He would be given a thousand pounds to enjoy the first flush of fatherhood. If this seems unlikely, it could also be imagined that Steve's characteristic bass lines wouldn't be easy to replace as well. However, Royal College of Music graduate Simon Rogers was drafted in as near seamless replacement to Steve for the writing of the album, as the most least likely Fall member in the least likely of circumstances. A move to a classically changed replacement may have thwarted many bands, but not the Fall, and certainly not this nation's saving grace. Steve was back for the actual recording sessions though, learning his riffs directly from Rogers. I don't know if it's a coincidence, but all my favourite Fall albums also have my favourite album covers. The Early Years Comp, Grotesque, Hex Induction Hour and This Nation's Saving Grace. This was Klaus Kassenskilt's third Fall cover. Well, Klaus and Michael Pollard. The cover is actually a mixed-media drawing technique over Pollard's original photograph of the Manchester City centre skyline at night. He also took the band shots on the gatefold in a cover. Klaus drew the clouds and the chariot in the darkening Manchester skies using what looks like black marker pen. It's a great combined media drawing that perfectly fits the disjointed sometimes sinister music within and remember this was a time when even your favorite bands had awful album covers anyway least we forget this is peak bricksmith era and the move towards a more pop riff driven sound that seems to avert many original fans of the band at this stage off the bat and for the record i'm a big creep fan 80s fall can do all the skewed pop and twisted surf at once, as long as we get an auto-tech pilot thrown onto the B-side. This balance of Bricks' pop smarts and the band's sinister experiments finds its summit on this nation's, along with a well-sequenced album-like quality provided by the opening and closing tracks Mansion and two encroachment Jarbles. sat. Clockwork Orange language reference to Balls. These two tracks neatly tie the album together, Opener Mansion being an instrumental version of Yarble's. What's between these two bookends, though? is surprisingly powerful and eclectic in just the right ways. Hold on. Is it just my imagination? Or is this album the best produced Fall album as well? No, it can't be the returning John Leckie seems to find just the right mix of odds and rocks to make this thing really fly, while still sounding grainy, warped and out of whack. It's a perfect balance this, it makes for a really layered complex sound. Bombast points the way this album will go. Raw, noisy, and well bombastic. Balmy is well balmy. English slang for crazy containing one of those four riffs, this time from Valerie by The Monkees. What you need is an odd slice of lo-fi repetitive psych, of which other examples lie within. Spoiled Victorian child takes us back to the skewed sinister rock of Bombast. L.A. is different again. Great circular riff, keyboard sequences, and repeated refrains reset us for the vinyl side too gut of the quantifier is reminiscent of the Doors Changeling, but not distractively so. These massive bricks rifts, she should be ruining the fall with them. The fact that she isn't is a feat of soon human magicianship. Here things get stranger and poppier all at the same time, and we are taken back into Smith's new house. Sounds like they've got a good deal on it. Sticking with the domestic bliss and drum machine wonder that is the psyched-out paintwork, which warps in and out of psychic zones like something off Neil's The Heavy Concept album. The Fall are surely the only band to make even settling down into something odd and creative and scary. This leaves only one song. I am Damo Suzuki. Basically, a tribute to the Can singer, but far more spooky and unhinged than anything Can ever did. That wasn't really their vibe anyway. Still, the band managed one more steal, even at this late stage with this one, rather appropriately from Kan's Oh Yeah from Take Omega. It's a suitably warped, chaotic way to lead into the final vocal version of Mansion. Encroachment, Yarbles, and a fine, oddly sad way to finish one of the fall's greatest albums. Every day you have to die some, every day you have to cry some, for the rumour all the good times are past and gone. So after the Lord's Mare Parade, one whole year later, comes Ben Sinister, subtitled Doomsday Payoff. Title from Vladimir Nabokov's 1947 novel. You'll be shocked to hear of some line-up shuffling that goes on. As long-time drummer Carl Burns is out, and Manchester's own drumming supremo Simon Wollstonecroft is in. Playing in both pre-Stone Roses and pre-Smiths bands, it seemed like he would be the eternal nearly man before hitting the fall jackpot even simon Rogers sticks around to add his own cultured keyboards and some guitar to proceedings he's actually a quite settled member of the band at this point i've resisted talking about the singles so far in this pod so i thought now would be a good time to mention some so the fall's last single this year 1986 is hey luciani the title coming from mes's first theatrical production hey luciani the life and codex of John Paul I, based around the mysterious death of Pope John Paul, Alberto Luciani, in 1978, continuing Smith's thin interest in all things papal, since Room for Live's papal visit. Dr. Faustus, Living Too Late, and besides Markle Sinkles Half-Found Borman and Sleep Debt Snatches were also from this production. There's a transcript online featuring Lee Bowery. Bowery would go on to design the costumes for Curious Orange. And the band reciting bizarre, fractured dialogue from the play, making it tantalizing longed-for watch that'll never happen. There are obviously audio recordings though, but I've never heard one. Mostly panned by critics at the time, as far as I know, no video footage exists of the play. Those are the days, eh? It seems that Smith's theatrical zeal was not tempered by this experience and he'd be back on the board in a couple of years time. So to Ben Sinister itself, this is the last in the trio of John Leckie produced albums and it's this production that forms one of the big talking points surrounding this album. Smith decides to master this thing from domestic and shitty C90 cassette tape mix. I know what you're thinking. Ferric? Type 2? Chrome? But this kind of detail is lost in the mists of time. I guess the decision was to throw some random lo-fi into the mix. But it doesn't really work. And I guess the overall effect just lessens and obscures the production bite that Leckie brings to the table. Just look what he did with this Nations. All this is probably symptomatic of the predictable breakdown in the Smith-Leckie axis. Nothing lasts forever in Fall World. Anyway, it doesn't sound bad, it's just probably not quite as good as it could have been. Like This Nations, you get a short, repeated track, nearly bookending the album, third and last tracks in fact, Shoulder Pads 1 and 2. Bearing a passing resemblance to the theme tune to British 70s department store comedy series, Are You Being Served? Can this be seen as the first reference in the Fall as Retail Outlet? See also Behind the Counter and Senior's Twilight Stock Replacer. Straight after the first shoulder pads, you get the first proper cover version on a Fall album. They'd already had a go at Gene Vincent's Rolling Danny, released as a single in 85, but it feels big to have one on an album at this stage in the game and a cover that would not only be The Fall's most played song live, but also one of their most recognisable. It's The Other Half's Mr. Pharmacist, a song from 1966 featuring on the Nuggets compilation. For better or worse, usually better, a cover version would feature on most of the Fall albums and singles here on in. What else are we getting on here? Well, it's pretty much all great, Not bad for an album that isn't quite as good as their very best. I guess it's not quite as memorable as their very best, but for the most part, it's all that's good about late 80s fall. US 80s, 90s manages to incorporate some very 80s drum machine that already sounds like an ironic swipe at the ubiquitous rhythms and sounds of the time. Bournemouth Runner is about a backdrop thief at one of their gigs. And Terry Waite Says is about the former envoy of the Archbishop of Canterbury, who negotiated the release of hostages in the Lebanon, who himself was taken hostage just after the release of this song. Whatever you do, you can't accuse Mark of a limited range of subject matter. You really can't. My section of this podcast is essentially the albums I first heard by the fall when I was getting into them in 1988-ish. I was probably about 13. The Friends Experiment had this brilliant pop song on it, though, called Victoria. That's great, I thought, that they can do all this weird shit and still write super tuneful guitar pop as well. It might not look like it, but we're still on Beggar's Banquet here. Although you'd be forgiven for thinking that we've suddenly gone all major label with another of those least fall-like things ever, the full band photograph album cover, and it's not even Michael Pollard. I don't mind this cover at all, though. With his out-of-focus band members in the foreground, Brix's smile and MES looking down on us from his shadowy vantage point at the back. I quite like this odd stretched collision of font styles, too. Simon Rogers is now out of the band proper, although he does play on the album. And alongside a returning to the fold, Grant Showbiz produces Friends. New to the band is a Marcia Schofield on keyboards. From New York, Schofield's band supported the fall a few times in the US. With two US citizens in the band, Bricks at last has an ally. You remember Mr. Pharmacist from the last album? Well it turns out that Victoria is another cover version from some band called The Kinks. And oh me neither, but that does mean that they've dropped another massive chart-conquering cover version ascending to a very respectable 35 in the UK Fab Charts. As far as I can tell, only there's a ghost in my house got higher at 30. Is anyone in the world concerned about full single chart positions? Anyway, Victoria is a massive 80s indie pop monster that I love, but a few folks seem to think it embodies all that is bad and unholy about the fall and the sway. Even M.E.S. is dismissive of it, downplaying it as a track released because it's hard to get hold of the original on vinyl, or something like that. I think I read that once. So what else is on here? You have sparse, strange tracks like Friends, Get a Hotel on Side One, that do the odd kind of spooky thing that appeared on the last couple of albums, but in their own special way. And like anything else in the canon, they're both pretty compelling and, well, odd. Keeping these two apart on the grooves of Side One is Carry Bag Man. Always one of my favourite fall tunes as a kid. That rockabilly riff, piano hammer, and an environment troubling retail receptacle. Always carrying his lyrics and probably shopping around in a plastic bag, MES really was the carry bag man. Did I say that Victoria was the only cover on here? Well, Athlete Cured is nearly a cover. One of those fall-riff steals. Spinal Taps, tonight I'm gonna rock you tonight. In context, it's such an odd steal too some crazy striking lyrics about East German athletes near poisoning from car fumes. My God, Smith writes some crazy brilliant lyrics in the 80s. Side 2 starts great with two quite traditional indie rock songs. The catchy cool in these times and the finger clicking the Steak place. The latter is never going to be everyone's favourite fall track, but I've always been intrigued by it for some reason. I like it. Brenhamnacht, is classic 80s riff plundering Fall, possibly the most jagged riff in the history of music. It just goes on and really doesn't need to stop. It's odd the Fall nicking riffs at this point because they seem to have them coming out of their ears. Or is it that all Fall riff steals are for knowing comedy purposes? Only having an excerpt from Guest Informant feels very unfair and we'll have you diving for the Victoria 12-inch where the other B-sides, Tough Life, Boogie and Twister will also make you wonder how they didn't make the album. We round this thing out with Oswald Defense Lawyer. Probably the only track here I'm not so fond of. It goes on a bit and even the lyrics don't have that intriguing edge you've come to expect. Don't hate it, but I'd have found a way to have those Victoria B-sides on there instead. As I have alluded to, it would appear that some people don't really like this album. These people though are resolutely wrong. This is really good, odd and eclectic album that shows everything that was great about the fall in the 80s. right let's discuss i am curious with a k orange with a j and seminal live together seminal is pretty much an ep with orange outtakes experiments and a whole side two of straight up live material so let's happily shove it in with orange and have done with it it is the end of the 80s and as we shall see the demise of bricks is first a most important tenure with the band. This was not a normal Fall album. A soundtrack to a ballet was probably exactly what you're expecting from the Fall in 88, in collaboration with Michael Clark. But who is he and what's he got to do with the Fall? Michael Clarke is a Scottish choreographer and dancer who'd been hovering around Fall World for some time in the 80s. Being a fan of the band, he choreographed performances to four songs, he suggested Stephen Hanley's replacement Simon Rogers, who's out of the band completely now by the way, with production work on Orange rather oddly credited to Ian Brodie and MBS. Mark Smith and Bricks also appeared on Clark's fictionalised documentary, Hail the New Puritan, in 1984 as the title suggests, featuring many of his choreographed dances to Fall classics in costumes that frequently expose their ass. It's brilliant transgressive stuff. The Fall and the Clark dance troupe would also appear on late-night BBC music show The Whistle Test, with a performance of Wonderful and Frightening's Lay of the Land, The Fall playing live behind the dancers in a way that prefigures the performances of I Am Curious Orange. That will be their first fledged production and collaboration. Although again, like Luciani, as far as I know, there are no full videos of performances of Curious Orange. It's crazy, but there are the odd snippet of tracks on YouTube, it's madness. The actual stage show itself was called I Am Curious with a C, Orange with a G. The title inspired by an early 70s Swedish art film called I Am Curious Yellow. So the basic theme here is about the Protestant King William III, William of Orange, Dutch ruler of Britain, deposer of the Catholic James II, and wager of war against Catholic France in the 1670s. If I told you we weren't going to be sticking slavishly to this theme, you wouldn't be surprised, would you? album opener, New Big Prince, takes the bare bones of Hex's hit Priest and rocks them up into a stew of underappreciated broth, making a great opener to the album. Early doors, we get another of those fall cover versions, but don't go running for the hills. This is one of the most surprising and best fall covers of all, Dog is Life, Jerusalem. So first off, we get all this stuff about our canine friends, spat out with all the hate and bile Mark can muster. Apparently Mark wasn't a massive dog fan and a big cat lover, so he lets rip here with dogs and their owners getting it with both barrels. After which we are transported into William Brake and Sir Humphrey Parry's bleak peen to building Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Dark, satanic mills and all. Is Curious Orange, the title track itself, the first fall reggae foray? I'm of the opinion that all albums deserve a bad reggae tune, and we are not disappointed here. Nah, it's good. Windfall CD, 2088 AD, is the first track on a fall album that sounds kind of like a remix, which is an interesting thing. M.E.S. quietly mouthing Guide Me Soft as the track fades out. With the equally sparse and atmospheric Yes Oh Yes following, it makes this section of the album feel quite fragmented and downbeat, but it certainly creates a sad, odd, and wistful vibe that culminates in Van Play. question mark. It may begin with a driving beat, but it doesn't hide its trepidatious warnings the impending overseas virus. Mark's talking about AIDS. This is a quietly grateful tune and quite easy to miss between those preceding tracks and along with the sombre first section of Bad News Girl, Bricks is about her and as their marriage would soon fall apart it's hard to disagree. There are a few songs on 1990's Extricate that also seem to be about her. Like the previous two albums, it's not all great, but it mostly is. Okay, so I'm placing this one alongside the previous two albums in terms of overall quality. And it's a notable step down from this nation's saving grace. But aren't most things in life? All this leaves us with is the great shoehorning of *Seminal Live, my second ever full purchase. So, this album marks the end of both the Bricks and Smiths' relationship, time in the band, and their contract with Beggar's Banquet. You can tell by the half live, half studio vibe that this is a contractual obligation album. Deadbeat and Squid Lord have already appeared on the 12th Peel session at the end of '88. Deadbeat itself was performed as part of the Curious Orange show. Odd that it didn't make the album probably because of that simple three note riff. It's a lot of fun and probably the first thing I learned to play on the guitar. I'll be honest, I love this mad eclectic first side with its mixture of oddball country, pinball machine, brick style classics and avant experimentation in Mollusk and Tyrol. The basis of Mollusk is actually Donkeys Bearing Cups, a 1981 instrumental by Future Fall producer Craig Leon. His original being the best version. Would have been a damn fine classic long EP this, but instead we get some contemporaneous live versions of recent and old stuff on side two, including a notable re of Pay Your Rates, and a funny band intro by Sex Pistol bothering Bill Grundy. So that was the second half of the 80s. Overall, perhaps not as good as the first half, but still damn good.
1: Hello there, welcome back. You have been listening to pretty much the 80s fall. Um and obviously still with us we've got John Henderson. Hey John. Hey Bliss. Hello John Fisher. Hi. And I'm gonna go straight over to Nick. Um Nick. Nick Bricks is here, right? This is Bricks. Well, sort of. Yeah.
0: She she this it's, this is the first album that Bricks appears on, but I don't think it's necessarily the first album, you would say, of the, the Bricks era, where she had a very strong influence on the band. If anything, it was just, um, you know, she was, she was in a relationship with Mark, and he brought her into the studio, and she just sort of started playing on some stuff, and she contributed to some songs, and it was kind of, that was it. She was it. It wasn't any kind of, like, you know, big introduction or anything to the band. They were just like, oh, okay, she's in the band now.
1: So is this you know? some sort, is this a lot of a... a- a bridge album into what would be referred to to say that the Bricks
4: I mean, period.
0: You could say that if, you, if you're talking about fall in terms of the Bricks era this is the bridge album into that definitely. I mean there's um, a song uh, Hotel Blowdell that she sings sings on um, and she's also in the backing vocals on Eat Yourself Fitter which is a really weird song. You know I mean and I think uh, I mean I, I like I love that it exists but I struggle with it a bit when I'm listening to the album I think because once I get past that I enjoy it a lot more. Why? Right. Um, I, I guess the rest of the album after that is kind of more in the zone of the classic fall sound. And, and besides the addition of bricks, you're still kind of looking at the, the classic fall lineup. So you've still got the double drummers of, of Carl and, and Paul Hanley, uh, Steve Hanley on bass, and Craig Scanlon on guitars. I mean, this is, you know, core mid 80s fall.
1: And I think it sounds great. And, and so there's no big shift musically yet? I mean, Not really. Okay, so it's more of a bit of a continuation, um, but obviously by this point they know that it's not their last album, uh, and they're aware that they're a they're a band moving forward. Is Riley still with them? No,
0: no. He well, he was gone during during the recording of Room to Live, I think. Um, so Mark Riley's gone. And I often wonder, like you know, what the follow sounded like if there'd been a way that Mark Riley could have stayed with them, because you know he was obviously such a strong member of the band and part of the sound. It'd been interesting to how they could have developed. The thing is. is Unless Mark E. Smith was in control of the ego, I don't know that he could quite work with it. You know? I mean, I guess that's why it was interesting the effect that Bricks had on the band, because he was another very strong personality in the band that, to some degree, was almost on a sort of equal terms with Mark.
1: And so how do we think Mark e. Smith, as a person, dealt with other egos coming into what was essentially his band? Uh, John, John Henderson, I mean, what do, you, what do you think in terms of how Mark was dealing with... Bigger egos uh, and and the conflict in the studio therein. I don't really think.
5: Well, first of all, I, I agree with Nick that this isn't really a Bricks album at all. I think she shows up on a couple of tracks. Mark had a habit of uh, all of his partners doing that at one point or another. Yeah. Even Kate Carroll, back in the early days, shows up on on the odd bit here and there. And I think that that's pretty much what happened. She sang on a couple of songs. I think that this is a band that realized how horrific room to live turned out and decided they needed to do something better again here they're back on rough trade after camera so it's a new label uh they had some funding rough trade was doing really well at this point um i think this is around the same time that smith's debut came out Mm -hmm. and rough Trade was moving towards a more kind of college rock uh sound in general in terms of what they sounded like or signed rather and um That said, I think it's a much better record than Room to Live, but I kind of think you could group those two records together and pick the best songs and they'd all be on Perverted by Language, but I think that it's still not really that great of a record.
1: That's my opinion. So we're sort of moving from early, so there's Early Fall, which has a lot of fans, and then there's there's future periods of Fall, which have lots of fans and lots of uh, standard uh, flag-waving. Uh, I I guess. And these are sort of in between bits. Fliss.
4: Yeah, I was I have this album actually, but I really don't listen to it very much. Um but at the time when I first heard it, I did think, oh maybe this is another near masterpiece after Ring to Live I couldn't even I'd never really listened to. It's not but they were touring so much at this time, right? They were mm. just constantly touring. And it made me think of um around this time or you know the full the fall fans and how everyone is it's like following um it's like following a football team isn't it but being really into that football team and sometimes there's highs and sometimes there's lows and you go to those gigs you go to the games and you never know what you're going to expect and I guess people kind of take it and take it in their stride don't they there's not not everything's going to be great Not everything's going to be a hit. So, so, what was,
1: I mean, so what was, as far as we're aware, the live experience like with the fall? It's not something we've sort of touched upon yet. Was it a chaotic uh, dumpster fire or, or was it just... John, when did you first case? see
0: them? I'm mean, assuming you, you saw the fall around that time. When, when, what was the earliest time you saw the fall?
5: Probably kind of around this time uh, in, in essence. I'm trying to remember. Um, I actually met them in 1980 when I was 15, outside the show that became um, a part of America therein, hoping that I could lag my way in, and, and I failed. Um, but I, I had a really nice chat with Mark Riley then. This They were um, already at the point where they were doing pretty much just the last album and half of the album before that. And uh, uh really good band live, you know, when I ever saw them. Uh, I know that, like any band, they had their bad shows. But at this point, they were still really solid. And and I actually should mention that Camera had really bad distribution, and they did collapse around this time. So when Rough Trade picked them up with really great distribution, it seemed like the fall were back. And that's mostly because they took out lots of adverts uh, in the weekly papers. The record was easy to find, even in America, where it didn't come out. Um, And so it gave people the false feeling, I believe, that this was a return to form. I don't think that today
1: it quite has the same cachet that it did back then. Okay. Um, and you said that like, this was roughly around the same time that the, the Smiths' first album was. So obviously in Manchester, this must have been the, the golden days, John Fisher. Well, apparently,
2: yeah. I was probably listening to Howard Jones though in
4: 1983. The um, there is the a name I have
1: totally forgotten about. <laughs> <laughs> How could you?
4: Um, okay, so if this wasn't necessarily
1: a seminal album, and, but we are moving into um, the four, getting a, a second sound, that moves into the wonderful and frightening world of Phyllis. Um, um, my notes for this were, oh, David Gage from The Wedding Present must have been listening to this album an awful lot, because I wow. can still start hearing The Wedding Present. David Gedge
4: actually ripped off an The Nightingale's riff So he <laughs> 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 He definitely yeah Had a lot of that um, You know, scratchy guitar And yeah. they, they went off in that tangent um, But yeah, I think this is A really smart record It's varied It's poppy, Brix is in With those pop hits But um, it's also really interesting It has loads of layers And it, Steve Hanley is the anchor well, in general, but definitely on this record
1: from there. And um, why Why do you think... I
4: mean, did he get...
1: Was he given more responsibility or was he just coming to his four as a musician?
4: I don't know. I just think it's really bass-driven. A lot of... All of the songs are, really, with the fall in general. But this one, I just think it it's a standout. It's more stand, standout. But, yeah, it's a very bouncy record. And I was... Really, into it from the first three tracks, I was totally there. I think it kind of it goes off a bit in the middle. um, I don't like albums at all. I've said that on my um intro um it loses it a bit, but then it comes back again um yeah, and I'm sure what did, it got in the chart. I think hex was the first album actually of to get in the charts, wasn't it, and then but this got higher um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um. How
1: how had they done? How were they doing? Just generally in terms of success at this point? Um. mean, um, maybe John henderson maybe, you, maybe you'll know better. Um. Was was there a level of success, or were they just a, a a fans band at that point?
5: I think they had been a fan fans band, and I think that this was the point at which someone decided that they could be a success, and uh, this was easily the the largest recording budget that they. Ever And you can tell from listening to it. Um, A lot of it is really constructed, whereas something I really love like Slate's, I think, was just jammed out over time. But this, they put the pieces together. Bricks clearly had a big influence on the band's direction. Uh, Fliss is entirely right about Steve Hanley's bass playing, kind of holding the whole thing together. And I think that that for the next many albums, uh, that was the case. I'm, I'm not sure... It's as successful in terms of songwriting as it could have been. This even the lyrics tend to be a little novelty. Uh, isn't Disney's Dream debased on this? That's, yes. that's you know, about somebody being deheaded on a Disney ride. Um, and uh, you know, it's a little it's a simplistic version of the Fall, I think. It it it's certainly where most people who are Fall fans started hitching a ride. This and the next track.
1: And, and they've got a bit, it is even, it like sounds a little bit rockabilly on what is it, 2x4? I think it's really
4: yeah. gothic. This is this where you were going to talk about your gothic?
1: Um, my entire yeah, the other right. these these few albums were when I start, started to notice the sort of well 80s UK because they sound have, coming
4: yeah, in. they have that Gavin Friday fella kind of yeah, yeah. squealing and. Yeah, I i't on with that.
0: That's, I, I have to admit, I, I, I was never a fan of the Gavin Friday vocals on this album. It took me
5: a while to, to get to grips <laughs> with it. Um, I mean,
4: it is strange, and uh, I think it quite works, but I don't really know his stuff anyway. So, but it definitely is gothic, oh. and obviously the land starts off with this like culty chant. I mean, I know Mark thought he, he was really into the occult and stuff mm-hmm. like that, isn't he? So, but I remember then,
0: going and. Sorry, go
4: on.
5: I think that Fliss makes a really interesting point, and I think that it's true. This is the point at which previously really underground bands started to taste that there might be some success down the road. And also, this was the point where what originally started as punk fashion in terms of clothing and looks started entering the mainstream like, like Goth did. And Bricks, who, if I'm not mistaken, has her own clothing store in london now mm-hmm. uh, and was you know always a very fashionable person she's a chicago girl like like not a girl but she's a chicago person like me and but she always had a really great fashion sense and, and fans started dressing better and i think she really helped push the look kind of of, of that stuff and i mean
0: even marquis smith started dressing better around this time what's that i think even marquis smith started dressing better around this time there's a brief window where you could see bricks had an influence on how he dressed
5: I think bricks started dressing Marquis e. Smith better.
1: Really. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, weird, I mean, in terms of like of that, I definitely was as I was doing all the research. My research for this: I was noticing that Marquis e. Smith started looking a little bit more stylized and a little bit more like a like a rock star it? or a pop star, like as a star. And then, oddly, I opened a news story about the making of the new Batman movie, and I realized that Robert Pattinson now looks like Marquis e. Smith. Really? If you don't see it, go and have a look at what Rob <laughs> R- 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 Pat's looks like now, and think he could play Marky e. Smith in the next movie. The next oh, movie. The next movie. But is it the one I missed? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, it's the one I made. Okay. Wasn't, so- wasn't, he, wasn't
5: there a Marky e. Smith character in Twenty Four Hour Party People? But well,
1: Marky e. Smith is in Twenty
0: Four Hour Party People. Oh, is he? Okay. I don't know if he's he as himself. I think he's just a random bloke in a queue oh, outside okay. a gig. Is uh, Jonathan, do you know that? Yeah, no, I didn't know that, I don't think. Yeah, that, I, just,
1: cool. I don't remember
0: seeing anyone actually play Marquis e. Smith. I mean, obviously well, I think a lot of full fans would like to see. You
1: heard, you heard it right. here first. Robert Patterson. That's gonna Okay. Hurt. I mean, if if it ever happens, just come back to this pod listener and go, oh my god, that guy was totally right. How's, um, how's his Manchester accent? Probably he's English,
4: right? You need to do a separate Robert Pattinson podcast yeah.
1: by yourself. Just, just <laughs> on his own. I've got a Twilight... It was in Twilight, right? I've got a Twilight yes. offshoot yeah. podcast. Um, temporary Twilight. Tem- yeah. no, you temp- full temp- fans? Temporary phantoms Um Anyway, <laughs> by this point, as this was my first journey through the fall, um, I was quite enjoying myself. I went into this with a lot of reticence um, due to just some General antipathy towards uh, who I perceived to Marky e. Smith as a person purely from a distance. As brief aside, and it's going to get covered in future episodes. Um, I knew Marky e. Smith as a character and as the guy that pronounced words ah at the end, ah, but I didn't really know anything about the music. Um, then, and we definitely cover this in a few episodes' time, when John Peel died. There was a Newsnight, a Newsnight episode that sort of enraged me at the time. And so I just cast the fall aside. I've been pleasantly surprised. Um, it took me a few records. The first few records, I tried to pretend I was listening to someone else. Um, and as it's gone on, I'm like, actually, this is pretty good. I'm quite interested. You at you and keep going, keep going. <laughs> um, now this is pretty good, and i have quite enjoy, i quite enjoyed it, um, and I can see myself going back, not necessarily to full albums, but particularly the bricks period, which we're going to get to like uh, pretty much immediately. There's a lot in there that I genuinely like, um, even to the point that I don't necessarily dislike the persona of Marquis e. Smith as much. Um, I guess, and I again, this is maybe how media has skewed things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Etc. Um, I've always perceived Marky Smith, particularly in his later years, to come across as a bit of a bully. Rightly or wrongly, it seemed that he was just a bit of an egotistical bully. Now, like I said, this could be how he was portrayed or the persona, because I didn't really know his stuff, and I never gravitated, gravitated towards people like that in general in my life. So I've been pleasantly surprised by this music uh, as we've been going forward. But we are now moving into a period that I genuinely will I genuinely like. Uh, which is late 80s and then moving into the 90s, the bricks period. Um, as a link, in the Can episode, I had some major issues with quite a lot of Can uh, and I swore a lot. Um, and we're moving on to an album that does have I Am Damo Suzuki, uh, which did give me flashbacks a little bit. Uh, Jonathan, you've got late 80s fall. Um, last time you were on the pod, you had. 90s Bowie, and I felt a bit bad about that, but uh, but you seem to really enjoy it. How is late 80s <laughs> for you?
2: Yeah, this was I suppose this was my entry point into the Fall at the time. I think actually, This Nation's was probably the first Fall album I heard. I think um, and it would have been in '88, I reckon, and I was like 13. And I used to root for my sister's records, and she had loads of Fall records, and Stuff like that. So, four were one of the first bands I got into through through that. And yeah, this and, and,
1: and this album. Um, so what, eighty five? Um, and we're properly moving forward into the second phase, right?
2: Yeah, it, I think you can really tell that there's the a real difference in sound immediately from this one. I guess you can hear it um, in Wonderful and Frightening as well. But it does sound like a whole new beast. But it's it's John Leckie again, isn't it? And he did produce the last album as well. But I think his production on this one in particular is really good. You hear this loud headphones and all that sort of rubbish. It, it does sound great. There's so many layers on here. It sounds wonderful.
1: Okay. Uh, I mean, I, what a standout track for me was L.A., which I didn't think the rep, the repetition, repetition, repetition hadn't necessarily been my... My favorite sort of trope throughout the other things I generally I like a tune, I like a bridge, I like a chorus, but that really sort of worked for me, uh particularly the guitar in there as well. Um, do we still have two drummers? Is that a constant thing throughout? The
2: I think there's only one now actually um yeah, Carl on his own on the score yeah yeah i think
0: I think, I think I think Paul had left to do his a levels I mean he was very young when he
4: about it. didn't Paul and Steve leave? Steve? During the tour of Wonderful and Frightening Wild Dog, because...
0: Um, well, Steve left for paternity leave, so he's mm-hmm. not actually on this album, is he? No.
4: No, he is. He's, he Just
0: plays definitely. on it, but he didn't write the songs.
2: Write the songs, the songs yeah.
0: Because yeah. I, I love the story that, um, so they brought in, what was the name of the guy they, they brought Simon in? Simon Rogers. Like, Simon Rogers, and they wrote uh, Spoke Victorian Child. And then when Steve Ganley came back and had to learn how to play it, he, he felt like he was being nudged out of the band because it had all these complicated time signatures. He thought, he thought that, he's done it on purpose.
2: <laughs> he's classically trained, Simon. Yeah, words, yeah. bizarre in itself.
1: Okay, um, so so okay, so we're down to one drummer. Um, quick question, Fliss. You you are a drummer. I mean, and we've listened to a lot of albums where there's two drummers working together, uh, and now there's one. What do you think the difference is to suddenly be the drummer that's got everything, whereas you were sharing something was sort of sharing the limelight like before.
4: I think it, w- it just came in waves, didn't it? Because he was at the start and then there was two and then it was one it was probably... I mean, it's really difficult to play with another drummer. I've really? done it once, once it before. Does. It's really fucking hard. And uh, they did such an incredible job, though, mm-hmm. um, as a two. Probably room to express yourself a bit more when it's just yourself. Um, it's I don't know what it would have been like, but you know is it competitive? Why would have taken
0: over like if you play yeah. got two drummers do you, you start competing with each other
4: i well i've only done it once and i was in awe of the other drummer so i was yeah. definitely yeah. not trying to compete well, um this, this was but that yeah, I, I imagine huh
5: was that with clunk chris connolly
4: that was with um the guitar band yeah with chris wow. yeah right. yeah so Who also was, who
5: also played in blue orchid so there's a fall connection
4: there is indeed yeah and, um, yeah, it's, well, you kind of have to let one person express themselves while you're, but I never felt that they did that in the fall, actually. I felt that they both were kind of expressive and that really worked. I think this album is really quite blunt, but punchy, um, doesn't lack any power. It's quite rock and roll actually, mm. you think, I thought. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, this is the one I often claim as being my favourite. But I think it's just for convenience. You know, you have to have one you can say as your favourite. And obviously, yeah, this nation's sure. seems to sort of I mean, cover work. all the things I like about the fall. Yeah, paintwork. Yeah. It's got lots of songs on it. That oh, it paintwork really
4: is such a good song.
0: And the one I find is sort of really uh, very typical of kind of Mark e. Smith's self-sabotage is you've got that beautiful last song on the album, which I feel could have been a massive 80s hit, but he called it, was it Two Encroachment?
5: Gobbles, gobbles.
0: Right? So he sabotaged his own beautiful song with a stupid
2: name. (laughs) I think those lyrics are from something as well, but
0: I can't remember. Every day you have to die. Directly. Every day you have to cry something. Yeah, I
1: love that. Yeah, it's good. Do do you think, I mean, I I know that was a throwaway comment, but do you think that Mark wanted fame? I mean, because a lot of bands, they they sort of, they they want to be big and famous. Do you think Marky Smith wanted to be successful and to be able to be in a band, but you think he wanted the thing that came with it. Um John Henderson, over to you. It's interesting because we we mentioned uh
5: Susanna's sister who designed the cover for Grotesque. And I've had a lot of conversations with Martin Brahma about these sorts of things because I was a big Fall fan and uh and he's usually happy to talk about it. And the way that he tells it was Mark was a younger brother uh of two sisters. And as such, he was like the little, you know, little Lord Fauntleroy around the Smith household. And he was never told no. He was never told. Everything he did was praise to the sky. His sisters, who were, I guess, a bit older, uh, doted on him. And I think that that carried on through the fall. I think he just always thought, I'm a big, kind of a big deal. And um, he could be a really lovely guy when you talk to him. But before you were talking about his personality, he uh, could be you know, a bit of an ass. And- that and that was certainly who he was as well Um, I don't think he wanted to be a star in as much as he wanted to be a person who could be on the front page of a music paper talking about how all the stars were horrible except him yeah
1: Yeah. okay that's probably a good good time to to skip forward one year to bend sinister uh, 1986 Uh, Jonathan Fisher um, what was the progression musically between these two albums? I mean, this is obviously still a period, right? And this is a more poppy period, a more accessible period.
2: Yeah, I'm not. I don't know whether there's much progression musically. I guess it. it it's that one I said in the in my bit of the pod before. It's like mastered from tape, so I guess yeah. it doesn't. The production it's is a great. Like story. Great there. Um, because yeah it, it's not all it could have been i think production wise and maybe the songs that i think I said this as well so i'm repeating this one it doesn't feel quite as memorable but i've always really liked it this one Um uh, mr pharmacist and all i sort of um she's always just sort of is their most played song live i think from this point on yeah 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 they always sure. play Mr. Pharmacist every show. And it's the one
0: even quite often, like, you know, non-fall fans, if they know one song by the fall, they're oh yeah, Mr. Pharmacist. Yeah. It's that, that seems nice. to be the one they know. Mm. Yeah.
1: That, no, that wasn't one of mine. I mean, like... Really? I, I wa- okay. Now, obviously the... Um, the cover of Victoria by the Kinks as well as Totally Wired, I guess, were the two that I knew without knowing before. Right. Um, so, um... In, so you it's, 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 so John, um Fisher, so you think there's not much of a progression? It's less um memorable as say the previous station saving grace, and obviously there's the it's it's maybe overly produced?
2: No.
1: <laughs> underly produced.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Somethingly produced.
1: It's just not quite as good, yeah. is it? Um, production. You Mars. told that story in your intro, right, Jonathan?
0: Yeah. Bit, basically, you know, they had John Leckie as the producer, and this is a guy who's worked with the Beatles and uh, countless legacy acts. And then you've got Marky e. Smith saying, well, I want to master it from this C-90. <laughs> <laughs> Was that your Manchester accent? Yeah, sorry.
2: Brown good. Better than mine, to be fair. S-
0: similar, to my, <laughs> similar to my German accent.
4: Oh. And oh. Hadn't John Leckie been on some kind of, like... Um, meditation thing before of doing a, or was the, this before that, he, was this before wonderful frightening world i can't remember but
5: yeah he he was fliss i can't remember what it was i want to say it was one of those like rajneesh kind of things
4: oh, yeah that, he was like, like super chilled out, yeah, yeah, super super chilled out yeah.
0: <laughs> well that was money wasted yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, Okay, so, I mean, let's spend a little bit more time on the Friends experiment. Oh, sorry, John, your hand's up. I just wanted to say a
5: couple of things, the first of which is we were talking about goth albums. To me, uh, Mm. Ben Sinister is the goth album by the fall. So Uh, goth. I might be a little influenced by the cover, which was very goth, but it sounded like a goth record. And the other thing I wanted to say, uh, just relating to nothing aside from the fact that Around the Beggars Banquet era, they started doing a lot of covers. Uh, Mister Pharmacist was a cover by a an American Garage Band. They did uh, Victoria by the Kinks. They did uh, what's the one? Um Hosting my hands. Pinball machine coming up. Wow. Uh, pinball machine and um, oh, what's the, was the big music? One it? Was that oh, and oh. they did uh, they did Rolling Danny as a, a B side mm-hmm. to a single by I think which I think was a Gene Vincent song. And yeah. to me, I just want to mention this. This I think is the point where the Fall's cover versions were far better than their originals from here on out.
0: From here on out? <laughs> <laughs> the
5: Bold well, State.
0: Ah, I, mean, I mean, Ghost in My House was my earliest sort of contemporaneous awareness of the Fall. I vaguely remember that being in the charts. No, yeah, but, that's but that's, I just remember it being a thing, and being vaguely interested in it without investigating further. But yeah, somebody, I was looking back at the comments on the, in the uh, Facebook group when we, when we listened to this Last time somebody described it as surf goth, <laughs> <Kind of> like, <laughs>
4: kind
0: of like. also
2: just because the idea of surf and goth are like almost like polar opposites.
4: Didn't like
2: that, <laughs> they do um, a, a day in a life as well, don't they? At this point, um, Sergeant yeah. Pepper my father or something, yeah. Day right. in a life that's crazy,
4: isn't it? They
5: did a lot, then they did uh, oh, what's that one going to Spain, and they did um. Oh, in the, that's the 90s, Music, yeah. the Sister Sledge song.
4: Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah.
5: We're getting ahead of ourselves. Though. That's, that's sort of early yeah. to mid-90s. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: all right. Um, okay, so if now is the period where all their, their, their cover versions are better than their original stuff. Um, the next Allegedly. album, well, for me, moving into the Friends experiment, which is, what, skipping maybe two more years, out of all the albums I've listened to so far as a full newbie, if I had to say to someone, this is the most accessible Fall album, I'd probably hand them the Friends experiment. Mm-hmm. For me, it seemed to be very, very uh, accessible and sort of the least Fall album I'd heard so far, despite still being a Fall album. Would that make sense? Or am I just going crazy? I'm often going no, no, crazy. No, that makes, that makes sense. Yeah. That it's, it's
4: definitely bad. the most accessible, I think. But I still think it is
1: a mixed bag. It's
0: very much a Fall album. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah. I think they're all Fallout. I mean, it's not like there's a acid jazz album that they, they sort of released. But I mean, okay, granted, we've got what nine minutes of Bremer Um but this is also the one with Victoria on, right? Yes. But the single was around then. Anyway. Yes. No, the yes. singles on Friends Experiment is not right? it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, no, the, the, this for me was, was the one. I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I could, I could, I could happily get into this if I, as a total newbie. Um, John Fisher, um, where does this stand for you?
2: I really like this one, but I know it's a lot of people really don't like this one. And I think maybe it's that more pop aspect to it, mm-hmm. a bit more, and that it's the cover as well, isn't it? With the, the band cover. I think yeah. people see this as like the, the
1: death of the fall almost. This album. It's Especially like, after Ben Sinister, it's too easy. which is like the second generation photocopy.
4: Yeah. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. And then
0: you've got something of this sort of soft focus 1980s band photo on the front. Yeah. which it, um...
2: Absolutely. But, well, you know, there's loads of things I really like on this album. Um, Carry Your Bag Man was always a favourite when I was a kid. I loved that one.
4: Um, was,
1: was this around right about the time of Hit the North? Uh, yeah. Well, no, yeah.
2: it must a little bit later. T- after though. this,
0: I think. Because that's not actually on any of the albums, is it? Some yeah, really normal, it was, it, maybe... I think it. Being curious,
1: orange and shift work, maybe. I think I think that's the thing, and we've touched on it uh, in a previous pod. Going and revisiting stuff during the streaming age, um, it's very hard. You have to go out of your way to find out what the original album tracklist was, because mm. we assume, and we, we mentioned it earlier, we assume that these songs. Were, oh well, yeah, this is a this was on the album, and then you realise that the album was only ten songs rather than fifteen, and none of the yeah. singles were on it,
4: especially on <laughs> Spotify, like. Yeah. This, yeah, it's, it's but also like in a you know two thousand I kinda of
1: started
0: fleshing out my full collection with CDs and all the CDs have a shit ton of bonus stuff on it, you know. Which with the full does usually include, include some great singles, but will also include like loads of kind of dross as well. Like I don't know, weird live recordings and things. Mm-hmm.
1: Um okay, so at this point, like I mean to me this sounds like a band that are moving into Accidentally, a mainstream, I guess. Um, John Henderson and um, what was happening with them success-wise at this point were they were they on an upward trajectory or was were they continuing still as a fans band?
5: Um, actually, I think I think that their upward trajectory kind of ended with Ben Sinister. I'm speaking strictly in in terms of the success they were having, not my own feelings on it. Uh, it was it was downhill from there on out until they. Uh, signed with Phonogram. Um, To me, I'm one of those people that thinks uh, Friends Experiment and uh, Curious Orange are just the worst fall records, up until the point where I quit listening to them altogether. So, yeah, that's my feeling. But I think the albums lacked really good songs. They had really good riffs and they were bouncing. They were very pop on a superficial level. But the fall weren't the kind of band that could really become pop stars. I mean, Marky Smith just wasn't that sort of guy. And I think here's where they pushed it a little too far. People liked the records, and I can appreciate that. But it was going to alienate a lot of their old fans, which it certainly did. And at this point, they were losing fans from Wonderful and Frightening World, um, This Nation's Saving Saving Grace, and uh, Ben Sinister. They, these records didn't do as well, and they ended up getting dropped because of that. I
1: wasn't... I, I'm. I, I, when I was reading for this, was, I thought this was the first one that hit the, that broke the UK top 20 because of Victoria. I thought this was the one that got through.
5: It's, well, I mean, to put that in perspective, it's a later album, but Extricate by the Fall was actually their, their biggest chart album, I believe. But nowadays, it's not really even in the top 15 sellers. So they had a lot of attention, but what happened was every fall fan would go out and buy it in the first week and then it would evaporate really quickly. So you can't go by chart positions. Um, the, the earlier ones sold not as well initially, but they sold and they sold and they sold and they sold. And now something like um, uh, slates for Well, not slates, but uh, what's the next one? Hex induction hour is a really big selling record for them, but at the time you wouldn't have known it.
1: Okay. Yeah. That, that, that totally mm-hmm. makes sense. Um Has anybody else got anything else to say about the Friends Experiment before we move on? The thing
0: I wanted to add was uh, there's a kind of thing that uh, Marky Smith started doing around, probably started around This Nation Saving Grace, but these kind of like quite wistful, almost confessional songs that are at odds with his personality and therefore seem that bit more powerful for it. And I I love the title track of Friends Experiment. Hopefully my friends don't amount to one hand. I think it's a beautiful song. And, um, you know, there's a lot of songs that he does like that that seem to be kind of at odds with the, the persona of Markie Smith and they're stronger for it
1: I think you touched on something there as well and it's a, I think it's a question worth looking at I mean was Markie Smith singing as a persona of Markie Smith was it an exaggerated version per- per- of himself he later? always
4: played characters and that's what he claims yeah. Yeah. Character. Yeah. yeah I mean that's how he can get out of some of the things he says I'm sure <laughs> yeah.
0: is, is it helpful girl of course yeah <laughs>
4: yeah
1: I suppose it goes back to like, a previous poem when we looked at Bowie and how all the different periods of Bowie were essentially Bowie, but just yeah. exaggerated forms of what Bowie was doing at the time. You know, the Thin White Duke period was just, you know, it was Bowie. But he's, off, he's often
0: singing about himself as well. I mean, he's like Carrier Bag Man. I mean, he can't be singing about anyone but Marky e. Smith in that song. He is the
1: Carrier Bag Man. <laughs> I've seen a lot of Carrier Bag Mans <laughs> at
4: Nightingale's. There's a few now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wait, wait, what, wait, what is a carrier bag man?
4: <laughs> it's i uh, I've actually seen Marky's, well, I've actually, a carry bag man, I'm assuming, is a man that carries... Um, <laughs>
0: a carrier <a> ba- bag?
4: what it says say something. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but um, actually, one of the gigs we played with before, um, we played with them in Luton, and it was during the later stages of the fall. And Marky Smith comes on stage with a carrier bag full of money, but it was only half full of their fee because he demanded that he'd got half the fee in cash before they went on stage. And I'm assuming they were going for like 10 grand at the time, which is kind of crazy considering Mm -hmm. the performance and also. The crowds weren't actually that big to, I don't know how that was affordable. Anyway, so he came on stage. I was backstage, saw him coming out of his car with his carry bag full of probably five grand. He then, during the set, obviously left the stage to say, I need the, the, the rest of the money because we're now going to finish the set and then I'm out, I'm out of it. <laughs> <laughs> then he came on with, you know, a bigger bag of money and then left. Yeah. So, so he, he, where, is, uh, he is he is bagman. So that
0: thing where Marky Smith always walked off the stage in middle in the middle of gigs and left the band on their own for a bit. Was he just arguing with the venue? Well not all the
4: time, <laughs> right. I've seen yeah, I've seen him do that a few times. Oh me too. Yeah. Me too. Lots of times. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um
1: this seems like a weird version of the Aretha Franklin uh, having a, her purse on the stage with the money and yes. um, Marcus is story. turning it with a plastic with a plastic bag doing, <laughs> doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's
0: got a lot in common with Aretha
1: Franklin, I think. <laughs> well, that is what my notes say. Um, most albums got yeah, very Aretha right right now. Um, okay, so um, we've you'd want you'd, you'd, you'd want to
0: hear Aretha Franklin's Surf Goff album, though, wouldn't you?
4: Hell yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: Now I am curious, but that is an accidental segue into I am curious orange, so I'm going to go with it. Nice. <laughs> uh, so, Jonathan, I'm going to go straight back over to you. Um, this is your last album that, that you talked through on the introductions, um, and so end of the 80s. Where do the end of the 80s leave us with the four?
2: Alley. One word for you. Obviously. It's bound to, it's where it was always going to end, wasn't it? Ballet,
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, as soon as you hear live at the witch trials, you're thinking 10 years from now, this band's going to do a
5: ballet.
1: So it's a ballet with uh, <laughs> Michael Clark,
2: who's done various bits with the fall before this. And um, this was um, yeah, a performance they did throughout that year, of which there, is, there are no um, video entire performances of the video, there's little bits you can see. Um, it's just it's crazy, isn't it? You can't see the whole I am curious orange.
4: Yeah, it's like it never happened.
2: It is. You would never have that now. It's, it's a brilliant thing in a way. It's very ephemeral. It just happened then. That's it. You don't see it. No one yeah.
4: sees it.
1: So, I mean, but... at, at, this, at this period, what, 88, I would say the UK alternative scene was actually getting quite, not mainstream, but you know, obviously there were a lot of bands like The Smiths, etc., who were big you know? and so it was it was less underground and surely this would have been a time for them to ride on that wave rather than going off and making some weird ephemeral ballet stuff. <laughs> you'd think but yeah <laughs> no <laughs> not gonna happen um john Henson, what was the uk music scene like at the moment was it a good fit for them or were they just going off in, in, in different directions
5: yeah I think at at this point, really the beggars banquet era was their attempt to really become a bigger band, but also to make a much bigger move in america uh, All these records came out in the states you know the first time an entire string of them had had been released in america and um I just think it was a really weird time uh shortly after this, Mark would complain to friends that you know he didn't know why he was doing this anymore, and he wished he could just start something else and 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 do it under a new name, but people would never let him uh I kind of get the feeling he was really depressed, and I think that I don't know if the ballet idea was sort of briggs's uh innovation or you know I mean aside from michael Clark but I mean, I don't know how that how the band worked it. It doesn't seem like something he would do and uh, to me, this is a pretty in a way a bleak record, so I, I don't really know um they really they really seemed kind of lost, and which makes the, the next chapter after Seminole Live really amazing. I won't spoil that for anybody. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, this record didn't do very well. And, and the next record, by all accounts, was a contractual obligation record where they just kind of put
4: some stuff together and put it out there.
2: The contractual obligation album, half live, half studio. Just like John says, it's kind of bits turned together. Um, Deadbeat Descendant was from um, the stage show Curious Orange, and I was always amazed that, that I didn't make it on there because it's. I love Deadbeat Descendant. I think it's. A re- it was a really good single, mm, tune, really yeah. good tune. Great riff. Those three notes. I think I mentioned it, be re- it. Really was the first thing I learned to play on the guitar. Deadbeat Descendant. You, you only need one string and three notes. It's, it's brilliant. It is. Everyone should learn to play that as their first guitar song. Um, okay, so.
1: so- so we've gone through, well, pretty much a, a decade or so of the fall. As a brief aside, how many peel sessions had they done by this point? Because they did seem 12. to be peel sessions. I think it's 12. 12 in total 12. or 12 up to this point? Up point,
2: yeah, no, up to this point. It's like Squid Lord was um, number 12, and that was the... Squid Law became on Seminal Lives, yet yeah, 12.
1: Um, okay, so this is probably a good time to wrap up the second episode of our journey through the fall. Um, so if you're if you're listening to this at home, you're probably somewhere in, I don't know, mid-March. You're with us till April at least. Um, thank you ever so much for your time and your contributions. John Henderson, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it too um fliss it's been great, great great to have you on thank you for having me jay fisher great to have you back
2: Yes, yeah, no, yeah that's great fun thank you
1: uh, uh, and nick i just want to say though
0: it's like we've got a bunch of different people coming in to talk through the 90s fall, but it'd be kind of nice just to get everyone back and like by the time we get to new facts emerge just to have like i don't know 20 people all in this uh, call just mm-hmm. pitching in and
1: talking about the fall because uh,
0: you know it's like it feels like you're just doing a little bit of the journey and there's so much more still to come.
1: But like they said that at some point, everybody has been in the fall. At some point, will everybody have been on our fall podcast? That's, that's the aim. That's the aim.
0: Although hopefully we won't part on acrimonious terms.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I thought we were going to have a fake fight. No, I just
0: remembered that too. John, <laughs> Fliss, you let us Where's the fight? Can <laughs> we, oh, we do oh, a fight no. now and edit it, edit it into somewhere <laughs> earlier?
5: No, it's, it's Fliss is too nice to pick a fight with. Oh,
1: <laughs> uh, you yeah. promised us fights. <laughs> they they did promise us fights dear listener um, and sadly we didn't get it but yes join us next time as we move into the 90s uh, with uh, different contributors um, some who you have heard before and some who you haven't and we'll see you next time bye, bye. adios
0: I would have happily kept going for another hour. Thankfully, for those of you with shorter attention spans, we didn't. But seriously, is six episodes really enough to do justice to the Falls' mighty discography? Maybe we should have made it 32 episodes. Or 64, an episode for each side. Anyway, allow me to thank everybody who made this episode happen. You were listening to Fliss Kitson of The Nightingales, John Henderson of Tiny Global Productions, and Jonathan Fisher composer of the Temporary Fandom's theme tune. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you to my indefatigable co-host, Ewan, for stopping us from dwelling too long on any one album and for stitching the resulting clamour together. Join us again next time when we creep into the 90s. We've got a new cohort of guests and, as always, loads more records to listen to and talk about. I'm Nick Hilditch, and I got everything I want, except for money.